Welcome um, to the fifth Head and Neck uh, podcast. This one's on the skull, the osteology of the skull and the foramen, and also including the scalp. Um, they're often, I think, in the any of the exams, in the practical exams, someone is always shown a skull. There are various foramen that you're expected to identify if you look at a skull, it's actually harder to identify the individual foramen from inside the skull. So that if you're shown a fossa view where you've got the anterior or middle or posterior cranial fossa, it's harder than turning the skull around than looking at the base of the skull. And particularly for the areas that you're going to be almost certainly asked about, the foramen ovale to point it out, the foramen spinosum, what goes through it, the foramen lacerum, the carotid canal, the jugular foramen, the chances of being asked this sort of stuff in an exam are about 110%. So if you've got a skull, particularly as we're going through this area, you can sort of monitor it on the skull as we're talking about it if you're running or walking as it seems a lot of people are with these podcasts then you can't do that but um, basically there are many options of then going back and reinforcing what you need to know and uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, First some words in general on uh, the skull and cranial topography we might use that term. The component parts are the cranium and the facial skeleton with the latter's main elements, including the orbit, the right and left maxillae, the zygomatic, or I prefer the malar, some people call that the triradiate bone, as a zygomatico-frontal suture, a zygomatico-maxillary suture, and then completed as the zygomatic arch, so that's why it's a triradiate bone, and that's the way it breaks, and it covers both the temporal and infratemporal fossae, and we've got a separate podcast on uh, the infratemporal and temporal fossae, pterygopalatine fossa that's coming up. The zygomatic bone meets the lateral wall of the orbit against the greater wing of the sphenoid bone. On the medial side of the orbit, that's formed by the frontal process of the frontal bone, the orbital lamina of the ethmoid bone, and the lacrimal bone, which also includes the lacrimal fossa, for the lacrimal sac, so there's both an anterior and a posterior pillar of that lacrimal bone. On the medial orbital wall, the lacrimal bone and the orbital lamina of the ethmoid separate the upper part of the nasal cavity, and that's an additional buttress which attaches the maxilla to the cranium. Laterally and above is, of course, the pterygomaxillary fissure. That's exactly what it sounds like. It's between the lateral pterygoid plate and the maxillary tuberosity, the front part of the maxilla. And that'll be discussed in a separate podcast, but that's the entry point of the maxillary artery from the depth of the face. Um, And that then divides into three sections. We'll talk about the maxillary artery in another uh, podcast. And uh, obviously coming out... Usually are a couple of stout maxillary veins um, that are making their uh, way out. 
So that is the fissure separating, if you like, the tuberosity of the maxilla from the lateral pterygoid plate, and that's an entry and exit point to the infratemporal fossa, and ultimately the pterygopalatine fossa, which as I've said will be, I think it might be in the next podcast, I'm not sure if this is the next one or the one after that. Um, this part extends as far as the inferior orbital fissure at the lateral orbital floor. And the arrangement of these buttresses, that's the cranial attachments to the maxilla, forms the basis of the middle third of the face, and also it affects our understanding anatomically, which we'll go through later, of middle third of face fractures, which affect, for example, the zygomatic bone and arch, either separately, so-called malar fracture or cheekbone fracture, the frontal process of the maxilla, and even the pterygoid laminae. The maxillae join, because we're just talking generally about the uh, face, for example, or facial skeleton, um, the maxillae join in the midline and are articulated by their palatine processes posteriorly with the palatine bone, which is an L-shaped plate, the horizontal lamina of which forms the posterior one-third of the hard palate and the perpendicular lamina of which forms the lateral wall of the nasal cavity with the maxilla in front and the medial pterygoid plate behind. So this creates a small point of separation, actually, between the lateral pterygomaxillary fissure and its medial extension, the pterygopalatine fossa and the nasal cavity. And to join these two is a notch in the upper part of the perpendicular lamina, which actually forms a particular foramen, or part of a foramen, called the sphenopalatine foramen. And that transmits the sphenopalatine branch of the maxillary artery and the nasopalatine nerve. And this is one of the exit doors of the pterygopalatine fossa into the nose. We'll talk about that in greater detail. Uh, but each of these compartments, basically surrounded by the maxilla, forms a particular corridor which becomes really the pterygopalatine fossa, for which there are entry points and exit points, like entry doors, exit windows, if you want to think of it that way. The cranium surrounds the brain and the meninges, and last, that's Ray Last's book, thinks of this like a series of highly modified fused vertebrae. I find some of the uh, osteology in Last rather difficult to understand. It's one way of looking at it, where homologies in cranial and vertebral bones uh, within their development are then sought. So the solid, median and inferior part of the cranium is thus the fusion of the occipital and the sphenoid bones uniting in the adult. And one could then, in this parlance, think of the lateral foramina transmitting blood vessels and nerves from the brain, that's largely the middle cranial fossa, as corresponding to the intervertebral foramina. That's the way Last actually looks at it. The development of the vertebrae and the development of the cranium have some homology. I think that's difficult to follow. But anyway, for this approach to be sustained, the vault of the cranium would then represent the vertebral arches, so the pedicles and the laminae, with only the occipital bone forming a complete arch to surround the foramen magnum. The inferior margin here has a facet, the occipital condyle, which articulates with the superior articular facets of the atlas. Lateral to this point, the occipital bone projects laterally as the jugular process, which is that bit of the bone just behind 
the jugular foramen. And that lateral extension of bone would then be, according to this kind of regime, the homologue of a transverse process of a vertebra and is the separating point of the ventral ramus of C1 inferiorly from the 9th, 10th, 11th cranial nerves, which lie compartmentalised in the jugular foramen. So if you like that kind of comparison between the vertebrae and the cranium, you can use it. The 12th cranial nerve canals, the hypoglossal canal for transmission of the hypoglossal nerve, would then have their own point of exit, just as we know, above those occipital condyles. So if you take the skull and you look at it, just sort of confirm that by turning it upside down. You're really interested in the structure of the foramen magnum and the relationship of the occipital condyles to the kind of anterior uh, uh, hypoglossal canal and that relationship to the jugular process, which is forming the posterior margin as an extension of the occipital bone of the jugular foramen. Posterior to the foramen magnum, the greater inferior cranium is the occipital bone. And that's dominated by a series of nuchal lines lying at the junction of the neck and scalp. And that's the surface marking of the attachment also, if you want to think of it, of the tentorium cerebelli internally. It's the level of the transverse venous sinus at the root of the posterior cranial fossa, which shows a sort of rough attachments also of the muscles which we can see like trapezius medially, the sternocleidomastoid laterally, the splenius capitis, which is attached deep to the sternocleidomastoid laterally to the lateral part of the nuchal line. And that area is transversely separated by an inferior nuchal line, which is not seen so well in some skulls, but that's limited posteriorly by the external occipital protuberance in the midline, from which laterally the superior nuchal lines then pass. And above that is the highest nuchal line, which gives a separate origin to the more superficial occipitalis muscle, as well as to the gallia upon neurotica of the scalp. I think for those interested, because I run a um, history of medicine um, a section on this podcast, the calvarium is so named because it's uh, equivalent to the sort of skull-shaped hill outside Jerusalem, Calvary, where Christ was crucified. The galea upon neurotica uh, of the scalp, or the galea upon neurosis, is actually derived from the ancient Hebrew word galgala, which means skull. That's actually also in the modern Hebrew. In the lateral aspect, along the bottom end of the coronal suture, the frontal bone articulates with the greater wing of the sphenoid, and with the inferior angle of the parietal bone, that's at a point which we need to know, which you'll be asked about, called the terion, P-T-E-R-I-O-M, which rather than a discrete single point is actually more an eight-shaped area or pattern of sutures between the frontal, parietal, temporal and sphenoid bones. So that's a better explanation of quite where the terion is. Here the squamous part of the temporal bone articulates with the greater wing of the sphenoid and it overlaps to the parietal bone. Inferiorly, there's the mastoid part of the temporal bone continues as a suture with the parietal bone, meeting the occiput as a sutured region, which is called the asterion. The occipital plate moves up between the posterior edges of the two parietal bones 
joining these at the lambdoid suture. So again, if you take a skull, you'll be able to see that uh, the obliquity of the posterior lambdoid suture. And uh, in some cases, there are, as we know, a collection of sutured, very small bones here, which are called the Vormian bones or Wormian bones. That's after a, an anatomist, Ole Vorm. And these parietal bones form the greatest part of the dome of the skull. The sagittal suture is a median suture separating the parietal bones, with the coronal suture separating the frontal bone articulation anteriorly. And you, hopefully you're checking this on a skull as we're talking about it. In some cases, the two halves of the frontal bone fail to fuse, and they leave what's called a metopic suture. The midline meeting place of the bones is actually called the bregma, which in the neonate and infant is basically the site of the anterior fontanelle. The frontal bone curves to form the upper orbits and the root of the nose, where uh, there is a separation by the cribriform plate internally in the anterior cranial fossa, with the ethmoid bone making up most of that particular area. Posteriorly, the ethmoid and the orbital parts of the frontal bone run backwards as the free lesser wing of the sphenoid, which completes the roof of the orbits posteriorly, and as a thin orbital process of the frontal bone, the anterior cranial fossa above, uh, which holds, of course, the frontal lobes. Now, more posteriorly, the sphenoid is comprised of a median body, which is hollowed out by the sphenoid sinus, with two greater and two lesser wings and a pair of hanging pterygoid laminae, which project downwards from the medial part of each greater wing. You may want to look at the separated sphenoid bone if you've got an exploded skull. They're a little expensive, but you, you may have that. You may have a separate sphenoid bone, or in your own university, there'll often be separate sphenoid bones. So you can clarify the bits of the body and what are greater and lesser wings in isolation. And from there, we can assess individual foramina, which are of relevance, particularly for the um, pterygopalatine fossa. So we've said before, as I've said, that there's a body, there are two greater and two lesser wings, a pair of really hanging pterygoid laminae or plates, which project downwards from the medial part of each greater wing. The body of the sphenoid articulates with the nasal septum in the midline and with the ethmoid anteriorly and the vomer inferiorly. Now, posteriorly, uh, this is fused to the basilar part of the occipital bone where the base of the skull largely grows until skeletal maturity at 22 years of age. Superiorly, this area, of course, forms the cella torsica, the so-called Turkish saddle. It's supposed to look a bit like a Turkish saddle, which houses the hypophysis or pituitary and which is limited by the dura of the dorsum celli projecting upwards from the posterior clinoid processes, which are located supralaterally. Above it is the sulcus chiasmatus, as it's called, and beyond the optic canal, transmitting the corresponding optic nerve and the ophthalmic artery. And that area is centrally the middle cranial fossa, and it houses laterally the temporal lobes of the brain. The lesser wing of the sphenoid 
projects laterally but ends medially as the anterior clinoid processes, just lateral to the optic canal. So you've then got a space, as you can see, if you look internally between the anterior and middle cranial fossae, the space between the greater and the lesser wing of the sphenoid is the retort-shaped superior orbital fissure, which is simply there as a mechanism where material coming from the middle cranial fossa can escape into the orbit. That's what the superior orbital fissure is for. And I often ask that particular question, quite apart from what's going through it and in what order. Each greater wing of the sphenoid is roughly a rectangular shape which is parallel to the lateral wall of the orbit. Posterolaterally is the spine of the sphenoid just below the foramen spinosum which houses the middle meningeal artery. The upper anterior part of this greater wing is of course pierced and you see that in the um, open middle part of the cranial fossa. It's pierced by the foramen rotundum which is, just means circular foramen near the medial edge of the superior orbital fissure uh, and it transmits V2 or the maxillary division of the trigeminal nerve. And posteriorly and perhaps slightly inferiorly you've then got the foramen ovale and next door as I've said already the foramen spinosum. Sometimes between those two areas there's an extra foramen, the so-called foramen of Vesalius which can transmit an emissary vein, things running really from the pterygoid plexus directly into the cavernous sinus or it can transmit an accessory meningeal artery from the maxillary artery. The pterygoid laminae project just below the point of the foramen rotundum, which forms part of the roof, if you like, uh, an entry part of the pterygopalatine fossa. So we've covered really the sphenoid. The remaining bone to fill in to join the parietal bone is the temporal bone, and that's the fill-in bone really between the occipital and the sphenoids and the squamous part or flat part of the parietal bone. The posterior inferior part, the petrous temporal, is a very dense cortical bone shelf. Uh, that part's not quite reaching the sphenoid, but leaving only the area of the foramen lacerum really between them. The petrous bone is pierced by the cylindrical internal acoustic meatus. That's pretty obvious if you look at that. And it articulates medially with the sloping part of the occipital bone called the clivus with a point of entry here for the inferior petrosal sinus. Now here the clivus and the posterior part of these two petrous temporal bones form the front wall of the posterior cranial fossa, which holds the cerebellum and the greater part of the brain stem. The anterior part of this pyramid of petrous temporal bone is of course the posterior limit of the middle cranial fossa. So this defines how the middle and posterior cranial fossa join. The base of the pyramid is at the mastoid process. Above this is the squamous temporal from which the zygomatic process emanates. The anterior superior notch is expanded as the mandibular fossa for TMJ or temporomandibular joint articulation. And inferiorly, of course, is then the external acoustic meatus where the tympanic part of the temporal bone meets the squamous part at an area called the squamotympanic fissure. You can see that in the rolled part of the tympanic bone. And that fissure is medially split, if you like, into a petrosquamous, 
and a petrotympanic part, which is the point in the middle ear, that latter one where the cord of tympani leaves. So it's making its way through in the middle ear through the petrotympanic fissure. Projecting inferiorly from the petrous temporal bone between the jugular fossa and the external auditory meatus is the styloid process, which you can see in some skulls and others it's broken off, some it's very developed, with the small stylomastoid foramen immediately posterior to the base of the styloid process, and that transmits the facial nerve. So the facial nerve, as it's come through the middle ear, does an angulation um, at an area called the geniculate ganglion and comes out of the skull almost vertically for those doing a parotidectomy, coming out of the stylomastoid foramen. Uh, well named between the styloid and the uh, process and the mastoid bone. So it's relatively uh, well named. The carotid canal lies as a circular opening in the petrous temple bone just forward, and that's transmitting the internal carotid artery. The sympathetic plexus running on the internal carotid, just called the internal carotid nerve, which emerges at the apex of the foramen lacerum by grooving the body of the sphenoid in its twist or so-called carotid siphon. On the inferior surface, the superior and inferior nuchal lines, as we've said, create four rectangular impressions on each half, with two alongside the foramen magnum. So you've got these kind of little bevelled-out areas, look like little um, uh, bits of a, a four-pack, like the rectus abdominis, where muscles attach. And um, basically, two alongside the foramen magnum receiving the rectus muscles, the medial ones receive the rectus capitis posterior minor, and the lateral area receives the rectus capitis posterior major. And I will include a diagram on our Facebook page of those. But you can see it in any uh, book. Cunningham is excellent at looking at the myology, the muscle attachments here. Between the superior and inferior nuchal lines, the medial area receives the semispinatus capitis, and the lateral area receives the attachment of the superior oblique. We do go into the suboccipital triangle because that is important, the area between uh, the superior and inferior obliques and those attachments. Um, but beyond that, I don't think one needs to know the great details of the attachments. I'm just telling you what's medial and lateral, what's superficial and deep. The exact attachments uh, can vary a little bit. The only other point one can mention is just to say that generally things go through foramina. Uh, and nothing goes through the foramen lacerum. You can get some emissary veins and other things that do go through there. But the reason why is because it's not, if you look at the skull, it's very irregular and it's not a true foramen. It's really the junction between that area of the occipital bone and the um, sphenoid bone. So it's a kind of fusion point in development. It's not a specific foramen for the transmission of nerves or vessels. Now, let's now move into some of the individual skull bones, and we'll start with the occipital bone. And again, it allows you just to separate these areas out and just pick out some of the particular things that may be of relevance. The occipital bone includes a basal part, which is the basi occiput that lies in front of the foramen magnum, a lateral part on each side, which is really the occipital condyles, 
and above the frame in a squamous part, both above and behind. The dura is attached to the edges of the frame and magnum, and the area is occupied by the lower spinal medulla, the spinal arteries and veins, the vertebral arteries, and the spinal roots of the accessory nerve in the subarachnoid space. Outside of this dural space are connections from the occipital sinuses to the internal vertebral venous plexus, the so-called Batson's plexus. And that's one of the really important re- uh, reasons that we need to know about this particular area. Behind the condyle is the shallow condylar fossa, which is perforated by the condylar canal, and that carries usually an emissary vein from the sigmoid sinus to the suboccipital venous plexus. Uh, we'll talk about emissary veins uh, in a later podcast, but they are obviously relevant in the transmission of sepsis through to deeper sinuses. And in this case, obviously, sepsis around the mastoid region or the mastoid air cells getting directly into the sigmoid sinus. The um, 12th nerve, of course, is around here, and it enters the hypoglossal canal within the occipital condyle, typically as two rootlets, which is separated by a flange of dura mater. Laterally, the occipital bone displays, as we've said before, the jugular process, which is the posterior aspect, an extension, really, a rough piece of bone that forms the posterior part of the jugular foramen. And that articulates laterally with the mastoid part of the temporal bone, as I've said, forming the back part of the jugular foramen. And if you've got a skull, you could stop the the tape and just have a look at that uh, from the undersurface and just confirm it. The prevertebral fascia actually is attached here superiorly, just behind the formation of the internal jugular vein. So again, that's a little trick that people say, well, what comes through that jugular foramen? And people say, well, this is jugular vein. That's not true. Really, it's the confluence of the jugular bulb and the inferior petrosal sinus, which forms just below the skull base to form the IJV. So that's a little trick question, but common. The basi occiput fuses at around about 25 years with the basi sphenoid in front of the frame and magnum. So it's not really until you get to skeletal maturity that this area is fairly fixed. Hopefully that helps on the occipital bone. The second area we want to talk about is the temporal bone. And there are four parts here, the petrus or petromastoid, the squamous, the zygomatic process, and the tympanic part, I guess along with the styloid process. The mastoid is grooved deeply by the digastric notch, which is the origin of the posterior belly of the digastric muscle. Uh, We've spoken a bit about that already. On the styloid, of course, you've got stylopharyngeus, which is the... um, It's innervated by the glossopharyngeal. That arises high up and medially. You've got the stylohyoid, uh, which is innervated by the seventh nerve, and that's high up but more posteriorly. And the styloglossus, which is innervated by the hypoglossal nerve, and that's low down and relatively in front. So near here is the stylomastoid foramen, which transmits the seventh nerve, and the stylomastoid branch of the posterior auricular artery. So this styloid process, which we'll go into uh, also in some greater detail when we talk about the pharynx, um, but it has a series of gyropes which are really remnants 
of the formation of the branchial uh, arches to some extent and part of the occipital somites. So part of it represents really the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is really the third pharyngeal arch that forms part of the body um, and I guess also the um, uh, lesser cornea of the hyoid bone. But that's the only muscle, the stylopharyngeus, which is innervated by the glossopharyngeal. And part of the third pharyngeal, or third branchial, I should say, arch. Um, so it's a, a kind of almost a symbolic as, as, um, assessment of that. The stylohyde is innervated by the seventh nerve. That's the second branchial arch, more the body and greater cornea of the hyoid bone. And then you've got part of the occipital somites developing with the hypoglossal nerve, and they're running near the styloglossus, which is in inserting into the upper part of the geneoglossus. So this is part of the hypoglossal nerve supply. So it's a kind of archetypical gyrope thing. It doesn't have real physiological significance. It's got, it's got more developmental significance um, in that way. In front of the jugular foramen, we continue with the temporal bone, and medially is the carotid canal with the ridge of bone between perforated by small foramina, including the tympanic branch of the glossopharyngeal. That's getting into that region as a sensory nerve to the tympanic canaliculus. And the sympathetic systems of the carotico-tympanic branches from the internal carotid are part of that as well. Antrolaterally in the petrous bone is the bony part, of course, of the auditory tube near the spine of the sphenoid. Part of the petrous um, temporal bone has grown down, actually, from the root of the middle ear, and uh, that area is really called the tegmen tympani, uh, and it divides the medial end of this bone behind the spine of the sphenoid into a medial petrosquamous fissure uh, in front, which is part of the temporomandibular joint capsule, and a sort of petrotympanic fissure behind, which we mentioned before. And I might include a diagram to explain that point, the differences between that. The petrotympanic fissure is just the external representation of where the corda tympani grooves out. It's making its way from the middle ear down to join the lingual nerve. Uh, within the depths of this, as I've said, is the corda tympani near the medial surface of the spine of the sphenoid. And its job really is bringing in, obviously, um, ta well, taste fibres are afferents, special visceral afferents, which are making their way from the anterior two-thirds of the tongue but are distributed via the lingual nerve, which is nearby. And also it's um, bringing out um, component portions of the preganglionic parasympathetic system, which we mentioned before in a previous um, uh, podcast, which are going to synapse in the available locally nearby submandibular ganglion to be the pseudomotor, SUDO motor supply to the submandibular and sublingual glands. Really, that's all we need to know about the temporal bone. The sphenoid bone we've mentioned before, I just want to uh, go over it again just briefly because we're separating these, these bones, but that area houses, as we know, as we can see, just to reinforce it, the foramen ovale, a medial foramen of the salius, which may join an emissary vein to the cavernous sinus and the pterygoid plexus, which I've mentioned before. There's not a lot of skulls that have that. The foramen spinosum, and occasionally a small additional foramen, 
for the lesser petrosal nerve. If these areas, the foramen of the salius and the petrosal foramen, don't exist, these structures normally go through the foramen of Ali. And below, this is the pterygoid process or pterygoid plate, with the medial pterygoid plate forming the posterior boundary of the nose. Inferiorly, this forms the delicate spur, which is called the pterygoid hamulus, that's on the sort of um, sort of rounded area on the bottom of the medial pterygoid plate, and that's the origin of the so-called pterygomaxillary ligament passing to the tuberosity of the maxilla. At the tip is a kind of pterygomandibular raphae, where the pharyngobasilar fascia and the superior pharyngeal constrictor are basically attached to that. And so running really backwards into the pharynx is the superior constrictor, and forwards taking origin from that pterygomandibular raphe is the buccinator. So that's just the way it's structured. And uh, above the origin of the superior constrictor is the so-called sinus, sinus of Morgani, the reason being that the superior constrictor takes its origin really from the base of the skull, hanging like a kind of hammock, and then inferiorly it's attached, as I've said, to the pterygomandibular raphe. So it leaves a kind of space, a crescentic little space, between the base of the skull and the upper margin of the muscle, and that's called the sinus of Morgani. Running through that is the cartilaginous portion of the auditory cube. And in the same vertical line as the medial pterygoid plate is the so-called pterygoid canal, which forms part of the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa and which admits the so-called vidium nerve. Now, I just want to clarify a couple of the things that I've just said. The sinus of Morgani has running through it the glossopharyngeal nerve and the cartilaginous portion of the eustachian tube. I mean, so who cares? The point is that there, sometimes there is a tumour in this region, usually a squamous tumour, and that can create, obviously, uh, painful swallowing, glossodynia, uh, some palatal um, uh, paralysis, of course, as well, paralysis of the palate and uvula, and obviously an obstructive deafness. And it's just a way that a tumour presents as a, at the base of the skull specifically because of a knowledge of this anatomy. When we come uh, back to this um, as well, I just wanted to then mention the second part, which is the pterygoid canal. And if we look at a separate sphenoid bone, as I said, this is part of the roof of the pterygopalatine fossa, but uh, in the same vertical line as that medial pterygoid plate, um, this is the part, the uh, pterygoid canal, that admits the nerve to the pterygoid canal. And uh, what that is is a combination of the sympathetic system and the parasympathetic system, which will then get into the pterygopalatine fossa and which will then, uh, the parasympathetic system will synapse in the pterygopalatine fossa, in the pterygopalatine ganglion, but the sympathetics and various sensory nerves will traverse through the ganglion without obviously synapsing. So um, the point about the, this that's a bit unusual is that the pterygopalatine ganglion actually combines in its fossa the sympathetic system uh, which has run along with the internal carotid artery part of the internal carotid nerve. And here we call it specifically the deep petrosal nerve, 
and that joins with the parasympathetic system which has come into the pterygopalatine ganglion from the so-called greater petrosal nerve, a section or a part of the facial nerve. So this combination of a nerve is known as the vidian nerve uh, or it's known as the nerve of the pterygoid canal. So what's unusual about that is that the autonomic nervous system that is then distributed into the territory of the middle cranial fossa into the face, palate, nose and pharynx is actually a combined sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. The medial pterygoid plate, to come back to our discussion, which is what we should be talking about, extends backwards to articulate with the vomer, with the medial extension of this part of the medial pterygoid plate also forming a little so-called vaginal process. And there is effectively a little so-called vomerovaginal canal, which is how the pharyngeal branch of the sphenopalatine artery or of the relevant maxillary nerve makes its way back into the pharynx. As we've said, the pterygopalatine fossa has direct connections for the middle third of the face, ultimately becoming the infraorbital nerve or artery territory, through into the nose via the sphenopalatine foramen, which we've mentioned already, and this transmits the sphenopalatine artery from the maxillary artery, the nasopalatine nerve. It'll run down the descending palatine canal into the palate, either running forward into the hard palate, where everything is called greater, greater palatine artery, greater palatine nerve, or running backwards into the soft palate, where everything is called lesser, lesser palatine artery, or lesser palatine nerve. And the only other connection that the pterygopalatine fossa has is back through this small so-called palatovaginal canal, or some people call it the vomerovaginal canal, and that runs back into the pharynx. And that's the pharyngeal branch of the maxillary artery, the pharyngeal branch of the maxillary nerve. So this area is bringing in all of the vessels which have run through from the maxillary artery in the pterygomaxillary fissure. So all the vessels are running into this region. The foramen rotundum is running into the top of this region, so that's V2, all the sensory branches to the middle third of the face, maxillary sinus and all the minor little sinuses. And then we've mentioned that through the pterygoid canal runs the vidian nerve or ter- nerve of the uh, pterygoid canal, which is the autonomic system. So this is a relay station for autonomics, sensory supply or sensory afferent uh, components and vessels. And that's how everything gets into that region and is then distributed, as we've said, to the nose by the sphenopalatine foramen into the infraorbital region where it ultimately comes out the infraorbital canal uh, and uh, or infraorbital foramen and into the pharynx via the palatovaginal canal or vomerovaginal canal and into the palate by the descending palatine canal. Forward as greater palatines, backwards into the soft palate as lesser palatines. That's just the arrangement of the whole thing, and uh, it makes a lot of sense if you think about things in this particular way. So we're getting off topic because we're supposed to be talking about the osteology. But nevertheless, what does it all mean? How does it all work is very important. Laterally, of course, the medial pterygoid plate articulates with the vertical plate of the palatine bone. It encloses a small foramen, as I've said, called the palatovaginal canal. And that is an entry point for the pterygopalatine fossa. And that, as I've said, houses the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion and its corresponding pharyngeal artery. 
The only other bit is the lateral pterygoid plate, and that's part of the infratemporal fossa as an attachment point of the pterygoid musculature. As we know, on the lateral side, the lateral pterygoid has its pterygoid attachment there, and in that pterygoid fossa, the bit between the lateral and medial pterygoid plates, you can check that out on a skull now, that sort of soft area, that's where the medial pterygoid takes its origin, part of it at any rate. The whole of the lateral surface of the lateral pterygoid gives origin to the lower head of the lateral pterygoid, but its inner surface gives origin to the upper head of the medial pterygoid. And both the lateral and medial plates stem from the territory in front of the foramen ovale, and they move forward to a common stem, if you like, of origin of plates, if you're looking at it. Now, that is where we're going to stop on the bones. We want to go next into the internal features of the cranial vault, so a fair bit still to do yet. Now, in the internal features, the inner surface of the cranial vault has a midline groove which widens as it is traced backwards from the superior sagittal sinus. Pits laterally are for the arachnoid granulations. We're looking at the inside of the calvarium now, which sit either in the sinus, these granulations, or outside in the lateral blood lakes. Um, there's another uh, podcast which describes the CSF dynamics and includes the venous drainage of the brain. Uh, and the cranium. Grooves for both the anterior and posterior meningeal um, uh, branches are evident laterally in the calvarium, and the internal part at the base of the skull then uh, is seen in three layers, which are similar to the steps of a staircase, divided into the anterior, middle, and posterior cranial fossae. The anterior fossa uh, is level with the mid-orbit. The middle fossa is level with the zygomatic arch and the posterior fossa is just above the superior nuchal line at the takeoff of the neck musculature. The anterior cranial fossa houses the frontal lobe. The middle cranial fossa, the temporal lobes, and the posterior cranial fossa, the tentorium cerebelli, and therefore the cerebellum and the brain stem. The posterior margin of the anterior fossa is the sharp concavity of the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid, where laterally it meets the frontal bone, and the greater wing of the sphenoid, which continues posteriorly and laterally towards the pterion, as we've defined it. The medial end of the lesser wing is projected backwards as the anterior clinoid processes, and the base of the lesser wing is perforated, if you like, you can use that term, by the optic canal, and that area of the Chiasmata is the dividing line centrally between the anterior and middle fossae. That small part in front of this groove is called the jugum of the sphenoid. And um, it's really the joint of the two lesser wings. That area leads in front to the cribriform plate of the ethmoid. The anterior fossa is dominated by the ridged orbital part of the frontal bone with the Christogalli for attachment of the falx cerebri and a small foramen cecum for the transmission of an emissary vein. So not a lot going on there, but that's the basic structure of the anterior cranial fossa. <clears throat> the middle cranial fossa is an H-shaped butterfly 
dominated by the greater wing of the sphenoid and extending laterally to the squamous temporal bone and backwards to the petrous temporal bone. That's its posterior limit. The hypophysis, of course, or the pituitary, is held in the cella tersica with an anterior hump, the tuberculum celli, and the back of the saddle, the dorsum celli, extending to the posterior clinoid processes, which last, by the way, rather nicely refers to as the bedpost on the back of the saddle. The dura sleeves over this area as the diaphragma cellae, which extends across to close off the cavernous sinus on each side. The area is pierced by the pituitary stalk and by the internal carotid artery which grooves the medial and bottom edge of the anterior clinoid process as it does its carotid siphon. And one can see medially a middle clinoid process. It's not well seen in some skulls at the lateral end of the tuberculum cellae and that gives a, a sort of compartmental dural attachments which separate the cavernous sinus from the pituitary fossa. Near the attachment of the dura to the optic canal is the optic chiasm, and above this, the anterior communicating artery, and then the rostrum of the corpus callosum. So that's the kind of progressive rostral movement of what you'd find in that part of the anatomy. The territory between the internal carotid artery and the foramen lacerum houses the greater petrosal nerve. We're also in the territory of the fifth or trigeminal ganglion, which is alongside the cavernous sinus, occupying Meckel's cave, or the so-called carvum trigeminale, same thing. From the apex of the petrous temporal bone is a spike where there's a groove for the inferior petrosal sinus and a mark for the course of the abducent nerve. The so-called petroclinoid ligament attaches to that spike extending halfway up the dorsum celli and lateral is then the sensory root of the trigeminal with the smaller motor root more deeply. And above this is the attachment of the superior petrosal sinus with the parts of the tentorium cerebelli. Laterally is a small groove then for the lesser petrosal nerve which is directed towards the foramen ovale. So this is the basic structure of what we've talked about from medial to lateral of the floor of the middle cranial fossa and the relationship to those foramina. The foramen ovale perforates the greater wing, if you want to use that word, perforates the greater wing in front of the um, trigeminal impression of the petrous temporal bone. And the foramen ovale transmits uh, the mandibular nerve as joining the sensory motor roots a vein from the cavernous sinus to the pterygoid plexus along with the lesser petrosal nerve. The accessory meningeal branch of the mandibula or first part of the axillary artery runs up here to supply the trigeminal ganglion in Meckel's cave and the meningeal branch of the mandibular nerve or V3, the so-called nervous spinosis on its way to the mastoid antrum and mastoid air cells will often run here with the artery instead of the foramen spinosum. So uh, there is some variation here. <clears throat> but you should be looking now at the bottom end uh, of the, the foramen ovale and mostly looking at the top end of the skull through the middle cranial fossa to see the area of the foramen ovale. There is a mnemonic, obviously, of what goes through the foramen ovale. People think of ovale in that particular way. But 
I don't think uh, that's remarkably helpful. The sphenoparietal venous sinus empties along the free edge of the lesser wing of the sphenoid at the cavernous sinus as one of its main draining points. And then you've also got the superior ophthalmic veins, which enter the medial end of the superior orbital fissure here to empty into the cavernous sinus. So it just takes some time, really, to look at the uh, foramen ovale. Uh, from the inside, in particular, its relationship to the foramen spinosum, the medial relationship to the foramen lacerum, above to the foramen rotundum, and just have clearly in your mind what goes through it. An emissary vein, as we've said, um, in particular, uh, which may run from the pterygoid plexus up towards the uh, cavernous sinus. Um, you have, the obviously, the V3 with both its sensory and motor root. You may have the accessory meningeal artery. You may have the lesser petrosal nerve all of those structures that are running um, through it. And those are the things to remember. If that does it for you as O-V-A-L-E, then that's okay as well. When we get down to the posterior cranial fossa, of course, the front margin of that is the petrous temporal bone. But it's deeply concave, this posterior fossa, where posteriorly and inferiorly it's grooved by the transverse sinus at the internal occipital protuberance. The sagittal sinus usually turns right along the transverse groove uh, here. And the other transverse groove at the inflow of the straight sinus is usually narrower and turns leftwards. The jugular foramen is formed by the jugular notch of the petrous temporal and the shallower jugular notch of the occipital bone, which we've already um, uh, met. And there's asymmetry here with the larger jugular bone receiving the sigmoid and the sagittal transverse sinuses, and that's usually the right IJB, or the right jugular vein or jugular bulb. On the clivus is a line of fusion, the so-called jugular tubercle, between the occiput and the lateral part of the bone at the level of the hypoglossal canal. And below that jugular tubercle are the exit points of 9, 11, uh, and uh, 12, uh, pardon me, 9, 10 and 11 on their way to the jugular foramen. And above this, the area broadens as far as the internal acoustic meatus and is broader where it lodges the pons. Above this, the basi occiput and basi sphenoid meet for fusion, uh, which usually occurs, as I've said, at maturity at about 25 years, the so-called sphenooccipital synchondrosis. And inside, you just need to take a little bit of time to just confirm all those points, the uh, obvious point of fusion between the basi sphenoid and the basi occiput, which you can see in every skull. We need to mention a little something about the ossification of the skull. Um, in the anterior fossa, the ethmoid is the only part to ossify in cartilage. The flaws of the middle and the posterior fossae ossify in cartilage, so endochondral ossification, but the rest of the skull ossifies in membrane, intramembranous ossification. And that's often a question that's asked about the calvarium or part of the ossification of the skull. There are some basal areas that uh, do have endochondral ossification. When we look at the frontal bone, uh, the, fr the trochlea lies below the floor of the frontal sinus. Just let's revert to that region of the frontal bone. 
and the area contains the frontal and the ethmoid sinuses. The foramen cecum, which we've briefly met, is usually imperforate. Articulation with the nasal bone and the frontal process of the maxilla, posterior border of the orbital roof, articulates with the lesser wing of the sphenoid. And laterally is the greater wing with the lateral margin of the orbit, completed by the zygomatic bone. Posteriorly is the squamous portion of the frontal bone and the parietal bone. And the junction, as we've said, between all of these is the terion. I might throw up a picture from last in that, if one wants to look at it. Uh, if you've got the latest ninth version of last, figure 8.6, which is page 844, and that's viewing the frontal bone from below. We're reiterating some aspects of it. We spoke about the sphenoid or sphenoidal bone, the pterygoid canal, just to reinforce, is more medial and is in line with the medial pterygoid plate, <coughs> which articulates with the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone here, and that forms the medial part of the pterygopalatine fossa. There is, if you look there, a small vaginal process of the medial pterygoid plate, which is the creation of part of the palatovaginal uh, canal. And under this is the vomer, which fits into the body of the sphenoid. The central part of the sphenoid is called the rostrum in some texts, and that articulates with the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid at the upper nasal septum between the two sphenoidal air sinuses. And again, if one wants to reiterate, there's a figure in the ninth version of last, that's the ninth, yes, the ninth edition of last, uh, which is seeing that uh, area from the front, figure 8.7 on page 845. Inferiorly, the body of the sphenoid articulates, as we've said before, as the basi sphenoid with the basi occiput at the sphenooccipital synchondrosis. When you look at a normal skull, that's actually where it separates. The superior orbital fissure, as we've said before, is between the lesser and the greater wings of the sphenoid, and the base of the lesser wing is perforated, if we want to use that term, by the optic canal. The floor of the posterior and middle cranial fossae ossify in cartilage, whereas bone above and below, that's the cranial vault in the face, of course, as we've said, ossifies in membrane. The body, lesser wing, greater wing, all ossify in cartilage, and the rest of the greater wing and the pterygoid plates ossify in membrane. The third area we've got to look at is then the temporal bone. Very briefly, the apex of the petrous temporal is lodged, as we know, between the basi occiput and the greater wing of the sphenoid as far as the foramen lacerum. Again, if you want to check that out just on any skull, it's evident, but it can also be seen in last, in figure 8.8, 8, page 846. The petromastoid part of the bone ossifies in cartilage. That's the hard bit where the internal acoustic meatus is, and the membranous parts are the squamous and tympanic. So again, we can see it's more the sort of solid bone within the skull, which is endochondral, whereas the flatter bones tend to be uh, membranous. We're left as we go further to the occipital bone, which we've already met, but again, we're looking at it uh, in looking at its connections. The area above the nuchal line ossifies in membrane, uh, as you'd expect, and there are four other centres which appear at the end of the second month, the basi occiput, joins each lateral jugular part with a cartilaginous epiphysis across the occipital condyle and around the hypoglossal canal. 
there are squamous, cartilaginous, uh, uh, and membranous formations. So part of it is a little bit um, um, mixed. At birth, the occipital bone is actually in four parts. There's a basiocipit, a pair of jugular parts, and the squamous part. And the squamous and jugular bits fuse around the time of milk dentition, which is about the second year, with the basiocipit and the condyles fusing at about six uh, years at the eruption of the permanent dentition. That's one way of thinking about how these things fuse when you look at a skull X-ray of a child. And um, I would say uh, that uh, when the permanent dentition is complete, the basiocipit and the basisphenol infuse, that's adult maturity at about 25 years, and as the palate grows to accommodate the teeth, there's a matched accommodating growth of the skull base, which allows the nasopharynx actually to remain patent as you grow. We're talking about the ossification, but also looking at the connections, the next one is the parietal bone. The sagittal suture articulates with the other parietal and the anterior border with the frontal at the coronal suture. Antero-inferiorly is, of course, the sphenoid, and uh, there is inferiorly the squamous temporal. Postero-inferiorly is the sigmoid sinus and the mastoid part of the temporal. The posterior border articulates with the occipital bone at the lambdoid suture. So we've kind of been through those, but we're re just renewing them. The ethmoid bone, when we get to that, the lateral masses are referred to as the labyrinth with separation of the cribriform plate and the crystagalli. Anterior to the box of that labyrinth is the lacrimal bone and posteriorly uh, the area is filled by the orbital process of the palatine bone. We'll come back into the orbit when we look at the back of the orbit on another uh, podcast will see the component parts but as we can see medially there's the lacrimal and ethmoid bones we'll see part of the greater wing of the sphenoid and then running back towards the optic canal uh, we've also got the frontal process of the maxilla so all of these parts will be discussed in greater detail when we look at the orbit but as you can see there are components from the other side that make up um, uh, the orbit the ethmoidal bone leads to the middle meatus via an infundibulum. The lateral plate is paper-thin bone, which is called the lamina papyracea. The superior and middle conchi appear from a, co from a common stem, and they diverge from each other posteriorly. We'll see this area better when we examine the inside of the nose and the nasopharynx. The larger middle concha articulates with the frontal process of the maxilla, and posteriorly with the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone, which is just below the sphenopalatine foramen. The lower labyrinth articulates with the maxillary hiatus with an uncinate process which runs across the hiatus semilunaris, as it's called, to the inferior concha. The anterior ethmoidal cells and the frontal sinus, of course, enter into the front of this meatus at the infundibulum. Most of the activity is occurring in the middle meatus. The middle ethmoidal air cells open onto a bulla, ethmoidalis, the posterior cells open below the superior concha at a higher level. And the perpendicular plate uh, articulates posteriorly with the voma and the rostrum of the sphenoid in the way we define that. The crystagalli, cribriform plate and perpendicular plate ossify in cartilage at birth. And they're a little bit, again, more solid bone so that they're more likely to have endochondral ossification. 
the maxilla. Uh, we'll be talking about these in much greater detail in another podcast. The maxillary sinus usually lies lower than the level of the palatine process, and it's a membrane bone. So we'll be coming back into these areas in much greater detail when we're talking about the nasopharynx or when we're talking about the um, sinuses, uh, which will be the same podcast. We can make a little comment just now um, at the uh, about the palatine bone. The anatomy of this delicate bone is the key, really, to understanding a key, at any rate, to understanding the pterygopalatine fossa. And for those interested, they can look at last, again, at figures 8, 11 and 8, 12 on page 851, which is a separated palatine bone. The back of the hard palate is obviously the horizontal plate of the palatine bone, and there's a larger perpendicular plate, the lateral wall of the nose. At the junction of these plates, posteriorly projecting backwards, is a small pyramidal process, and that's positioned between the back of the maxilla and the lateral pterygoid plate, and that effectively plugs the gap between the pterygoid plates uh, and articulates near the tuberosity of the maxilla. It gives some origin to the deep head of the medial pterygoid muscle. The horizontal plate articulates with the palatine process of the maxilla meeting in the midline. Posteriorly is an area called the nasal crest for articulation with the vomer. And that extends posteriorly as the posterior nasal spine, but it gives rise to the smooth curve of the back of the hard palate and the area, obviously, of the greater palatine foramen. The palatine crest gives attachment to the palatine aponeurosis of the tensor palati muscle, as well as some attachment of the palatopharyngeus muscle. The perpendicular plate, on the other hand, articulates with the maxilla and the medial pterygoid plate, forming the medial wall of the pterygopalatine fossa. And that then, the bone then projects up into two kind of processes once it's orientated that way, an orbital and a sphenoid process. And this part of the bone houses the sphenopalatine foramen as well as the greater palatine canal. The sphenoidal process overlaps the vaginal process, which we've already met, of the medial pterygoid plate. At its posterior border, therefore, is the so-called palatovaginal canal, which houses the pharyngeal artery and the pharyngeal nerve. The orbital process fills in the floor of the orbit near the posterior ethmoidal air cells and completes the sphenopalatine foramen, which transmits the posterior superior nasal nerves and the nasopalatine nerves along with branches of the sphenopalatine artery, the maxillary artery. And if you're looking at an orbit in front, you'll see, therefore, a small area of this part of the orbital process of the palatine bone, which fills in that last little bit of the orbit. So if people are asking how many bones actually are there in the orbit or contribute to it, you've got to think of the maxilla, the, the frontal bone, the lacrimal, the ethmoidal, the palatine process, or in this case the sphenoidal process of the um, palatine bone, rather, and then obviously the greater and lesser wings of the sphenoid. So it becomes uh, a little question in that regard. Um, it's worthwhile looking on um, any of the Google imagery um, that may be around to look at the individual bones of the orbit, just to reinforce that point. From this anatomy, the medial wall of the pterygopalatine fossa is then the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone. 
The anterior wall is the body of the maxilla, the posterior wall is the root of the pterygoid process and the greater wing of the sphenoid, and the roof of the fossa is the body of the sphenoid. In this way, the uh, palatine bone actually is a bone, uh, since we're talking about osteology, that develops in membrane. Um, a couple of little tiny points, nothing I really want to say. Uh, the nasal bones, they articulate with one another in the midline with the frontal bones superiorly and the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. The lateral articulation is with the frontal process of the maxilla. We're looking at the lacrimal bone between the frontal process of the maxilla and the labyrinth of the ethmoid. They extend into a posterior lacrimal crest which houses the lacrimal sac. The other area is that you may want to look at in your own teaching, which I'm not going to go into, the inferior nasal conca, um, and uh, there'll be other parts where we discuss particularly the mandible, the hyoid and the styloid apparatus, not on this particular um, uh, podcast. The vomer, very briefly, rests on the nasal crests of the maxilla and palatine bones posteriorly, expanding as ailey, which slot against the sphenoid near their vaginal processes. I should mention, because we're talking about the ossification of the skull, uh, the newborn skull, the big difference with the neonatal skull is obviously the disproportionate size of the large cranial vault respective to the small face. The adult has growth of the maxillary sinuses and the alveolar dentition in such a way that there's a normal vertical height of the orbit when compared with the maxillary and mandibular height. So that's the way the face actually changes. The bones of the vault and the face are all formed at birth, but they're mobile on each other. The anterior fontanelle lies between the parietal behind and the frontal in front. The two frontal bones unite by the second year, closing the fontanelle. Actually, it's rarely palpable after about 18 months. The posterior fontanelle is between the parietal and the squamous occipital, and that closes usually by the end of about the first year. The growth is at the base of the skull as a kind of appositional growth with an interstitial growth in the thickness and moulding with some shift to incorporate red diploe in the vault, uh, in the compact bone of the vault. Now, the final area which I wanted to discuss uh, is the anatomy of the scalp. And um, we've then covered the foramen, we've covered at least some aspects of the osteology of different parts of the skull, and hopefully you've gone through some of those. We will come back to the orbit, and we'll come back to the side of the nose, the nasopharynx, and the uh, paranasal sinuses. Um, but what I want to talk, as I've said, is the anatomy of the scalp, just to add to this, and the basic kind of neurovascular layer. The mandible and its development, along with the dentition, is also considered in another podcast concerned with the mouth and the palate. And that'll include the practical anatomy as well of mandibular fractures. Separate small podcasts are going to overlap with the hyoid and the styloid apparatus. We'll talk also about middle third facial fractures, but not on this uh, podcast. Uh, that comes with the maxillary and paranasal sinuses. By way of introduction... The skin of the face is zoned, as we know, by the trigeminal nerve, with the three zones meeting at the margins of the eyelids and the angle of the mouth, and with the junctional lines curving upwards. 
There is an accompanying small schematic, which I may put out on V1, V2 and V3, but as the cranial cavity expands, the face skin is actually drawn upwards with the beard skin drawn up like a smile over the temple. And that explains really the distribution of the auriculotemporal nerve and the way that the neck skin is drawn up to replace this area. So that it's pulled up on the side, and that means that the V3 area covers the lower angle of the mandible and runs into the temporal region, the so-called auriculotemporal region, just pulled up. It means that V2 is a small kind of V-shaped area in the middle third of the face. And um, basically, the only area of facial skin that is not supplied by the trigeminal is then at the angle of the mandible, which has been pulled up a little bit, and that's the territory of the great auricular nerve, which we've already considered. The muscles of the face are also supplied by proprioceptive fibres from these cutaneous nerves, which may have some functional connections with filaments of the facial nerve. For the purposes of completeness, although the face is considered in another podcast, the branches are basically then as lacrimal, supraorbital, supratrochlear, infratrochlear, external nasal, that is in V1. In V2, they are the infraorbital, zygomaticofacial, and zygomaticotemporal. And in V3, they are the auriculotemporal, buccal, and mental. And we're talking about the cutaneous supply. So just going over that again, in V1, uh, as I did that fairly quickly, but they are the lacrimal, the supraorbital, the supratrochlear. These, of course, are relevant for the scalp sensation, the infratrochlear, and the external nasal. The middle third of the face, as we've said, is the infraorbital, that's the termination, really, of V2, the zygomaticofacial and zygomaticotemporal, which is easy to remember, and then V3, which is the auriculotemporal, largely a bit of the buccal and mental. Now, let's get on to the scalp. The scalp covers the vault of the skull, extending down between the right and the left temporal lines, the eyebrows and the superior nuchal lines. There is a mnemonic of scalp, obviously, which includes S for skin, C for cutaneous tissue of superficial fascia, A for the aponeurosis, the so-called galia aponeurotica, or the epicranial aponeurosis, various different terms that are used there, L for the luciferial tissue, and P for periosteum, or perhaps a better term is pericranium. The galia is the tendon which unites the frontalis and the occipitalis muscles, with the skin fixed to the galea by dense vertical strands and with the nerves and the blood vessels lying in this superficial space. Deep to the aponeurosis is a relatively avascular layer which slides freely on the pericranium. And that, of course, is the typical question that's asked. The site of bleeding in the scalp can be excessive. It can even be fatal, even life-threatening, may be readily controlled by hemostat forceps on the galea. All you need to do is put them onto the galea and lift it up which tamponades the vessels above, rather than needing to find vessels individually and losing time, uh, you know, wasting time losing blood. At neurosurgery, this is controlled by little specially designed compression clips. But basically, if you just pick up the gallia, all the blood vessels are running above that level. The area also includes the temple or the temporal fossa, which lies between the temporal line and the zygomatic arch, and that houses the temporalis muscle, the temporal fascia, 
and an extension of the epicranial aponeurosis, which gives origin to the extra-auricular muscles. The auricle, its shape, details, nerve and blood supply are part of an ear podcast, and they'll appear in greater detail, uh, as I've said in another podcast. The nerves of the scalp and the superficial temporal region. Now, the region is supplied in broad principle by the innovation of the of seven, that is, uh, motor-wise, the sensory innovation of five with its divisions, and by the second and third cranial nerves, as well as by some sympathetic innovation to blood vessels, sweat glands, or ectopyly muscles, which have an arterial um, play from the superior cervical ganglion, and they're distributed along the facial arteries uh, principally. Now, anterior from a line of the ear to the vertex, sensory five is present, except for the skin on the posterior inferior aspect of the jaw and the lower part of the auricle, as I've said, which is supplied by the greater uh, by the great auricular nerve and posteriorly to the ear by the lesser occipital nerve, uh, which are the ventral rami of C23 and C3 respectively. So these are the so-called great auricular and lesser occipital nerves, parts of the cervical plexus, just pulling on the lower part of where we're talking about a bit of the auricle, a little bit of the angle of the mandible. But the rest of this is then uh, five. And that's because the face has been pulled up by five. That's, that's really why that occurs. Behind this area, there are the corresponding dorsal rami. They're no longer the ventral rami, and they include the greater occipital nerve, which is the dorsal ramus of C2. There's no cutaneous element of C1. And the more slender third occipital nerve, or C3. Not to confuse the lesser occipital nerve with the third occipital nerve. These nerves actually, by the way, the greater uh, occipital nerve, very large nerve, the greater occipital nerve, piercing the trapezius with the occipital artery, about two and a half centimetres lateral to the external occipital protuberance, so that one can find it in incisions in that area. Um, it is the thickest cutaneous nerve in the body, running across the suboccipital triangle. Below the inferior oblique muscle, actually piercing the semispinatus capitis and reaching as far as the skull, or scalp if you like, vertex. So the greater occipital nerve runs to the vertex. And um, it's a mixed nerve supplying the semispinatus capitis muscle. The third occipital nerve, which is a bit more slender, is the cutaneous branch, as I've said, of the dorsal ramus of C3. That supplies the skin of the nape of the neck up to the external occipital protuberance. So its supply is not that great. If it's injured in some way, there's not a lot of morbidity from that. The rest of the scalp is covered, however, anteriorly by a connection, as we'd expect, with the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves. Again, going back from anteriorly as far as the vertex. Um, the supratrochlea emerges at the supraorbital notch or a foramen. These can vary a little bit as to whether it's a complete foramen, supplying the paramedian part of the forehead and the upper eyelid and dividing into a lateral and medial branch, which is also cutaneous for the mucosa of the frontal sinus. So the supratrochlea does have some sensation that gets out to the frontal sinus. So really those are the nerve supply, if you like, of the scalp. We've got a combination of five and then the dorsal rami around um, C2 and C3. 
The arteries of the scalp are the branches of the external carotid artery, except for the forehead, which receives the supraorbital and supratrochlear arteries, uh, which originate in the orbit from the ophthalmic artery. The ECA arteries here for the scalp include, of course, the superficial temporal artery, which originates in the depth of the parotid gland, running alongside the auriculotemporal nerve and dividing actually into anterior and posterior branches running towards the frontal and parietal eminences. There's also a transverse facial artery running forwards over the masseter below the zygomatic arch. There's a middle temporal artery at the root of the arch running above the external auditory meatus, and there may be a zygomatico-orbital artery as well which can anastomose with branches of the ophthalmic artery between the two layers of temporalis fascia. The other arteries for consideration are a posterior auricular artery, which is a direct branch of the external carotid, and the occipital artery, too, for extensive scalp anastomoses. So there's a mix of ECA and a little bit of ophthalmic termination as well. The veins accompany these arteries, but they uh, do have sort of different central connections, if you like. The supraorbital and supratrochlear veins unite at the medial angle of the eye to form the facial, or sometimes it's called the angular facial vein. And uh, there are direct communications there with the orbital veins. The superficial temporal vein joins uh, really a middle temporal vein, if you like, and forms the, ret uh, the retromandibular vein at the root of the zygomatic arch. Actually, it joins the maxillary veins at that level. It becomes the retromandibular vein at the root of the zygomatic arch. The retromandibular vein is joined by the transverse facial vein, as I've said, and maxillary veins, becoming the anterior branch, which joins the facial vein, and that becomes the internal jugular vein. The posterior division, or branch of the retromandibular, joins the posterior auricular vein, and it becomes the external jugular vein. So there is this kind of split arrangement. On the posterior side, the occipital vein becomes part of the suboccipital venous plexus, as I've said, deep to the semispinalis capitis. And that joins the sigmoid sinus, when present, by a condylar emissary vein, which we briefly mentioned before. The sigmoid sinus is also connected with the occipital veins via a mastoid emissary vein in the mastoid foramen. And there's also a connection here between the transverse sinus and the occipital sinus. The emissary connection here is important. There is one, for example, also through each parietal foramen to the superior sagittal sinus, another through each mastoid foramen to the corresponding sigmoid sinus. Others are discussed in greater detail uh, on a podcast. I think it's two ahead of this in the venous sinuses, which includes the discussion of the... Um, Circle of Willis, the diploic veins in the forehead uh, and the occipital region. So there are some specialised emissary veins at this point. The muscle to consider, obviously in the scalp, is the occipitofrontalis muscle. The occipital bellies are shorter and narrower than the frontal bellies. Occipitalis arises from the highest nuchal line passing forwards into the aponeurosis and it fades out laterally by blending with the temporalis fascia. Frontalis arises um, aponeurotically 
and it attaches to part of the orbicularis oculi and the skin of the eyebrow. The frontalis muscles meet, but the occipitalis muscles do not. Only the occipitalis, therefore, has a bony attachment. And these muscles are innervated, as I've said, by seven, by the facial nerve, a posterior auricular branch to occipitalis, and temporal and zygomatic branches to frontalis. On the scalp and forehead, the frontalis is an antagonist to the orbicularis oculi, like an eye sphincter, if you like, so it's the reverse of that. There are no lymph nodes on the scalp, but drainage goes to the occipital and posterior auricular lymph nodes and to the preauricular and sometimes parotid lymph nodes. It's irrelevant for people who've got a squamous lesion on the uh, forehead uh, or on the scalp at that point. There is also a, a small area that I'm just considering here of the temporal fossa and the zygomatic arch, and then we'll finish off uh, as it's going fairly long. Temporal fossa and zygomatic arch, on examination of the skull, there are really two wavy lines that you can see there, temporal lines, a superior and inferior, which emerge from a common origin at the border of the zygomatic process, which sweeps up behind the ear. The temporal fossa is bounded by the lines above and the zygomatic arch below. The landmark of the terion, as we've said, is here, and it's filled in by the temporalis muscle and fascia. Deeply, this fossa at the level of the greater wing of the sphenoid uh, becomes continuous with the deeper infratemporal fossa, which, along with the pterygopalatine fossa, uh, we discuss, as I've mentioned, in an ongoing podcast. The temporal fossa houses the zygomatic process of the frontal bone, the zygomatic arch, and the maxilla. The temporalis fascia is attached here at the superior temporal line, passes down to the zygomatic arch, the deeper layer runs under the arch to become continuous with the deep fascia over the masseter muscle. And you've got here in this region the superficial temporal vessels, the auriculotemporal nerve lying over uh, the zygomatic arch with the temporal zygomatic branches of the facial nerve. So that's the territory when we're talking about temporalis or temporal fossa. In this area is filled by the temporalis, and of course um, it's also the key to fixing um, some of the simple um, fractured malars, and we'll supplement uh, this when we talk about fractures of the middle of the uh, middle face. Just briefly, the temporalis is a fan-shaped muscle, takes its origin from the inferior temporal line, inserts by a stout tendon into the coronoid process of the mandible, extending a little onto the front of the ramus and partly onto the mandibular notch. These attachments are pretty relevant as this insertion needs to be removed in order to adequately display the infratemporal fossa. So you've got to have an understanding of the sort of complex insertion of temporalis into the coronoid process. Um, if you want to see the area also of the base of the skull, the mandibular nerve, that whole area needs to be cleaned out, taking out the zygomatic arch and the insertion point of temporalis. If the zygomatic arch is completely removed, one can then see, as I've said, the maxillary artery, the middle meningeal, the mandibular nerve emanating from the frame navale just at the base of the skull. So it is an important part of the deep facial dissection. The attachment here can extend as far as the attachment of the buccinator and out to the retromolar fossa. The blood supply here, of course, is the temporal branches of the maxillary artery. That's coming from the second portion of the maxillary artery, which provides muscular branches to the masseter 
temporalis medial and lateral pterygoid. And so some people call that the pterygoid portion or second portion of the maxillary artery. You could equally call it the muscular portion. The nerve supply here, of course, is motor by um, five, uh, which is to the temporalis, and that's usually as a couple of branches. These are branches to the temporalis from um, the motor root of the trigeminal. These muscles of mastication are branchial, and so therefore the motor um, cells are what we call SVE. It's not a great term because everything that's branchial is called a viscous. Not, that's not a great term, but they're therefore called special visceral efferents. To be honest, they're not really visceral and they're not either special, but they are part of the branchial musculature and cells that are linked to the motor components of the branchial musculature, in this case the muscles of mastication, are part of the SVE cell types. Uh, temporalis, masseter, lateral and medial pterygoid are the muscles we're talking about. The temporalis shuts the jaw, but it's also the only muscle to retract the condyle of the temporomandibular joint via its posterior fibres. An appreciation of the anatomy here of the fascia also assists in fractured malar treatment. The structure of the malar, will go into that in greater detail, but it's a triradiate bone, as I've said before, with zygomaticofrontal and arch sutures, so that when the cheekbone is broken, and this is separable from a blowout fracture of the orbit, but when the cheekbone is broken, that block of bone, which is the malar bone, effectively is a kind of triradiate bone, and that can move upwards or outwards or inwards. And in some cases, it can actually impact directly onto the coronoid process of the mandible. Now, normally, as part of this injury, the mouth cannot be widely opened. In other words, that the patient presents with trismus, and that's because of masseteric spasm with the uh, fracture. But in one where the malar is actually impacted against the coronoid process of the jaw, it, it actually may make intubation very difficult. If the malar has actually been pushed inwards and is impacted against that coronoid process, that may be very difficult to actually open the mouth for intubation. The Gillies approach... Uh, for fractured malar, which was devised by the plastic surgeon Sir Harold Gillies, was one we had to do regularly. We had a regular list of facial bone fractures, uh, middle third fractures, which we all did as uh, surgical registrars um, and did Gillies operations, and you'd usually have a list to do that. So the Gillies approach, which was devised by the plastic surgeon Sir Harold Gillies, is to make a small vertical temple incision and then place a periosteal elevator just under the zygomatic arch, blindly actually lifting it into position. And that's the approach really for a very simple type of malar and zygomatic arch fracture. You could feel it just clunk into place. And um, obviously with um, CT reconstruction, more complicated procedures are being done, more plates are being used, and there's more kind of open uh, cosmetic approaches. The impression of a simple isolated zygomatic arch fracture, uh, if you're just looking at that, also requires a knowledge of the anatomy and what radiographs you're going to ask. You would ask, for example, if it's an isolated arch fracture for the radiog uh, radiographer to tilt the head into a sort of soft sub-occipitomental view which separates the radiology of the arch. When you look at a normal skull X-ray, if you look at a plain AP X-ray, you don't see the back of the orbit because it's covered posteriorly by the petrous temporal bone. So that the type of uh, X-ray that you needed specifically to ask from your radiographer uh, was an occipitomental view, either a steep one or a minimal one, 15 or 30 degrees. So an occipitomental view, so that an OM view 
pushes the Petrus temporal bone away so that you can see the orbit uh, lying above and see whether there's a fracture. Nowadays, obviously, people are using CT scans. There's not these requirements, but it did require us to know a little bit, not only about the anatomy, but also the type of radiology that we actually specifically had to ask for. Middle third fractures of the face, orbital and orbital blowout fractures, are discussed in the sections on the orbit and the maxillary sinus, and mandibular anatomy and fractures are discussed in the podcast on the oral cavity along with the palate. So um, that's um, it uh, for that region. I just wanted to check. I think the next one is on the cranial nerves, and also we're going to talk a little bit about the brainstem nuclear cell types. All the best. Thank you.